Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University. Today, I with Bobby Lee to talk about his book, The Promise of Bitcoin, The Future of Money and How It Can Work for You. This book is published by McGraw-Hill just now in May 2021. Welcome, Bobby. Yes, thank you for having me on this podcast. Well, Bobby Lee is among the leading figures in the field of cryptocurrency. He is the founder and CEO of Ballet, a cryptocurrency startup. He is also the co-founder of BTCC. This is the longest-running Bitcoin exchange and leading financial platform worldwide. He's also uh, serving on the board of the Bitcoin Foundation, a nonprofit organization that has built wider awareness of Bitcoin, and it is one of the industry's most influential group. Uh, before this, uh, Bobby um, was vice president of technology for Walmart, and previously he was a software engineer at Yahoo, where he worked at the development of the very earliest online communities. So this book, for me, was a great opportunity to learn about Bitcoins. I've, I've always more or less known what they were, but this uh, was um, a very vague awareness of something that is becoming more important now. So um, we can go perhaps through the chapters of the book, but maybe, maybe, maybe now I will start with a difficult question, which is, are you Satoshi Nakamoto or have you ever <laughs> met him? That's a that's an easy question. Well, actually, the first part is easy. I uh, I'm definitely not I'm definitely not Satoshi Nakamoto. And uh, have I met him? So I so I think Satoshi Nakamoto is several people. I think it's uh, again in the industry, uh, Bitcoin has been around for over twelve years. There is no solid consensus as to who is exactly Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, as people may know, Satoshi Nakamoto is the uh, the person who authored the white paper and created Bitcoin. And I personally, in the book, I talked about this as well. I personally think it's a combination of three different people. Uh, a combination of uh, Craig Wright. Uh, he's a very controversial figure. Uh, he has claimed to be Satoshi Nakamoto, but and uh, people have sort of debunked it. But nonetheless, I think he is part of the three. There's also uh, uh, David Kleiman. He's also he unfortunately passed away several years ago, so we don't have solid proof. And the third person is a gentleman by the name of Phil Wright. So I think uh, I think these three people together make up Satoshi Nakamoto. Okay, thank you. Um, so we're talking about something which is a bit mysterious from the origin. So we don't even know who started this uh, huge project. And uh, it is something which appears esoteric from uh, from outside this field. But after all, it is maths, finance, and software, and uh, 
it is something very concrete, like um, uh, the, the value itself of the Bitcoin apparently is something very concrete, even if non-traditional. So can you tell us uh, something about what uh, Bitcoin are and what cryptocurrencies in general are? Yes, so, so cryptocurrency is a new term that was invented with the invention of Bitcoin. So again, Bitcoin was invented in, if you will, in early 2009. It was proposed in late 2008 uh, in a white paper, which was published online, so, sort of anonymously under the name of Satoshi Nakamoto. No one really knew who this person was. He was corresponding with circles of people in the, in the community, uh, the crypto community. And... Uh, Basically, for many years, for you know, up to 20 years, researchers, scientists, and what they call cypherpunks were trying to create a digital version of money. Uh, if you will, all through history, uh, we've had money that was centrally managed and controlled by banks. So the note, so if you, even in the, in the, after the internet in the 1990s, uh, what we call e-banking came about, which is like online banks. Uh, for example, I banked with Wells Fargo Bank in the United States. It offered a website that allowed me to see my bank balance and allowed me to uh, view, tra- uh, initiate bank transfers and so on. But even though it was e-banking, uh, the banks were still involved as a third party to monitor and initiate and receive transactions between two people. For example, even PayPal, uh, Venmo, Visa, these sort of third-party payment systems also were electronic internet versions, but they were also a third party involved in the transaction. So true electronic money was envisioned by these researchers and scientists as a way for people to transfer value, transfer money amongst each other, but without a third party. And that's a notion of using cryptocurrency. So that's why cryptocurrency was invented to solve this problem of allowing individuals to send money to each other in this case, uh, through the use of a technology that involves uh, cryptography. Cryptography is a branch of mathematics. Think of it as the technology behind how people encrypt documents, how people use digital signatures, how people use passwords, uh, passphrases. So all the stuff you use on websites that uses cryptography. So how can we invent a new kind of currency that's electronic, allowing people to send back and forth. And the solution was to use cryptography to do that. And Bitcoin was born as a first solution to provide true cryptocurrency for the world. It is what they call a decentralized solution. That means that there's no one in charge. There's no central authority. There's no bank of Bitcoin. There's no issuer of Bitcoin. There's no country, you know, uh, monitoring Bitcoin, even though I'm on the Bitcoin Foundation, the Bitcoin Foundation does not own or operate Bitcoin. So so that's a key point, right? So Bitcoin itself is is amazingly successful, it's useful, but at the same time, there's no one person, one team uh, that controls it. Even the creator today, uh, that we, we don't know who it is, he or she does not have control of Bitcoin anymore. So uh, that's the definition of cryptocurrency. Uh, did we really need this decentralized form of uh, payment or attribution of value? 
And uh, yes, um, because for example, your company, uh, your previous company, BTCC, um, was very successful in China, in particular, and you have been living there for some time. Uh, and China is very successful in other forms of digital payments, and has been ahead of Europe, for example, for a long time. And was this additional tool necessary, really? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so nothing in life is, is truly necessary. It all depends on the people, right? So basically, we, you know, we create things in life, and then some, some things are more popular than others. So in my opinion, I, I think it's inevitable. So if you look at the history of the Internet, the Internet, by the way, has been an amazing invention of humanity. It's been with us for you know, several decades now. And it's transformed our lives, especially during the COVID pandemic years. Now we can have entertainment at home. We can have long distance communication, not just phone calls, but video calls, live video streaming. Uh, even people work from home with multiple, you know, Zoom windows and all that stuff like that. So uh, as I recall uh, growing up in the 80s, you know, uh, the first things that went digital was music, right? Through, the, through, through CDs, digital audio. And then we had digital photos digital cameras, right? So all of that, of course, can be transferred over internet. And of course, another fundamental component is file transfers and email. So basically digital communication, text communication. Um, that's why fax machines went away, right? So telephones, landlines pretty much went, have gone away. Uh, now mobile, mobile, phone numbers, mobile phones, as well as a lot of uh, voice over IP over the internet, and eventually, when the bandwidth and the capacity of the internet grew, we have video. We have online video, download movies. But now we have even better, which is live video streaming, right? So, so entertainment has gone online. Many things have gone online. And even access to websites, you know, travel, e-commerce, all of that is powered by the internet today. But in the end, one of the last, last things to go digital, to go on the internet, is money. So I would say money is very important to society. It's a fundamental you know, unit of what makes society function, the idea that people can, can uh, work to earn money, right? So working, is in the, working everybody works, so we all have to work for our life uh, to make a living, to, to, to eat, to make the food we can eat, to allow us to have uh, housing, you know, buy clothes and all that. But money is a notion of changing, exchanging my labor into a unit of value, which I can use later, right? So instead of having to barter for things, barter for goods and services, we could have money as an intermediate form of value. So, so money has been invented for centuries, right? Thousands of years, uh, originally with gold coins and so on. But uh, with the internet, how, how do we transfer that uh, money Across the digital internet. So I would say it's very, very useful. It's very, very necessary. But again, just like I say, the internet is necessary, but some people disagree. So it's, it's a matter of perspective. Some people live a very fulfilling life, you know, offline. They don't use the internet. They don't use e-commerce. They don't watch movies on Netflix. They don't send email communication, and they certainly don't do any video phone calls. So for those people, they are completely offline. They don't use the internet. They can have a very fulfilling and happy life that they don't need digital money like Bitcoin. But for the rest of us who are connected to our smartphones, who use e-commerce, uh, who, you know, who spend time on the internet, for us, I think it's inevitable that we will all use digital cryptocurrency Bitcoin in the coming years. 
Yes, now I feel that probably my question was something that my grandmother might have asked, was this really useful, necessary? <laughs> and, uh, yes. and you gave me an appropriate answer. Anyway, in your book, there is a lot of China, um, not only because to some extent it is your um, background, cultural background, but also uh, because the, the cryptocurrency has been very successful there. And you give uh, different reasons why China was uh, a successful uh, Uh, case of development. Uh, later, I will ask you about the involvement of the central bank, but can you tell us now, in, in the meantime, why China uh, has been interested in cryptocurrency a lot? Yeah, so I've had the fortune to, be li to have lived in China for the last, I think, around 15 years. So I, I was born, my, my heritage is Chinese. My grandparents were from China. But I was born abroad. I was born in Africa in a country called the Ivory Coast, uh, Cote d'Ivoire. And then I had the fortune to, as a family, we emigrated to the United States. Uh, we immigrated to the United States and attended high school and college there. So for the most part of my adult life, I spent outside of China. And only after working eight years at Yahoo did I then switch over to live in China and then, uh, you know, start a family there and all that. Um, so China, and, and of course, I discovered Bitcoin 10 years ago in 2011. And... So I've also had the fortune to, to start my first entrepreneurship company, BTC China, there. And indeed, you're right. China has been very active in, in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I think it comes down to a few things. I think culturally, uh, the Chinese people are very hardworking. And, um, and you know, they're obvi obviously, you know, they have a good education system. People are smart. People are very numbers-oriented uh, in general. So it's, it's a, and of course I was living in Shanghai and many of the cities in, in China, very fast paced, very much like the Western countries, metro, uh, you know, metropolitan uh, cities, very fast paced. So Bitcoin cryptocurrency was seen as the new frontier of the internet. And furthermore, because Bitcoin allows for people to buy and sell, there's a financial component to it. So unlike just, for example, download videos or, movies, you know, audio, music. Um, with, with Bitcoin, there's a financial component to it where people can trade, can buy and sell. And as, um, as many Chinese people will tell you, I think culturally the Chinese people are very, are very much interested in gambling. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, I, I, don't think, I think it's no surprise that in Las Vegas and Macau, all the, all the, all the um, casino cities around the world, I think that there's a very healthy amount of Chinese clientele. So, you know, regardless whether that's good or bad, you know, Chinese people like, uh, uh, in, the people in China I've encountered very much like to participate in investments. Uh, they like to, you know, trade, they like to earn money. And Bitcoin provided that perfect match where not only was it a new technology, digital currency, right, evolving. Uh, by the way, we launched BTC China in 2011, just two years after Bitcoin's birth. Uh, this is the very first Bitcoin exchange in China. And then it flourished uh, in 2013. So by two years later, it flourished. So, and it's been flourishing for the last, you know, eight years uh, since, since 2013. So, so for that reason, I think Bitcoin trading, right, became very popular in China. And a lot of exchanges uh, launched and a lot of trading. There's futures trading, a lot of derivatives, you know, options, futures contracts, uh, 
you know, mar uh, with with uh, with margin trading and so on and so forth. So it's become very popular. So popular that the authorities uh, might even start thinking we need to regulate it, or we might need to provide uh, our own alternative for forms of. Uh, cryptocurrency. So what's happening in Europe, uh, in China and elsewhere in terms of, uh, uh, yes, involvement of the traditional monetary authorities? Yeah. So, so you're right. So the Chinese government, uh, the central bank in, in leadership position, they started to crack down and try to regulate Bitcoin trading and so on in 2013. So in December 2013, uh, the Chinese People's Bank of People's Bank of China, which is a central bank, issued its first sort of guidance on Bitcoin. And they actually declared it legal as a digital asset, as a virtual asset, virtual currency. Uh, sorry, it's not, a, it's technically it's not a virtual currency because they don't recognize it as a, as a national currency or a legitimate currency for payments. So they recognize it as a legitimate asset for people to own and uh, to own and store themselves. People are allowed to buy and sell it. But what they disallowed was for companies uh, to offer formal services around it, such as uh, payments at restaurants, payments for coffee and stuff like that. So and then China, the government has had an on and off relationship with Bitcoin over the last eight years. Uh, and there was another crackdown in 2017. But nonetheless, what's interesting is that Bitcoin itself cannot be deregulated because Bitcoin is decentralized, meaning it's free to do what it wants. Uh, however, the companies around Bitcoin, whether it's an exchange, whether it's a payment service provider, whether it's a bank or retail company that sells goods and services, these companies are always under the regulation of the government they are situated in. So in that case, China, China government or any government for that matter can stipulate and can be specific about what companies can and cannot do with Bitcoin. So, so China has taken a very very aggressive stance against Bitcoin use in society. Uh, but, the, but the reality is even if Bitcoin cannot be used in Chinese society, Bitcoin itself is still flourishing in the sense that it's still being traded and transferred by the people of China back and forth. So it's never been illegal uh, as an asset. So unlike, for example, drugs, cocaine, marijuana, which are clearly forbidden and illegal, uh, Bitcoin has had the positive that it's never been illegal in China. So I understand that the European Central Bank is studying whether they should try issuing a digital currency. Uh, and I imagine it will have a stable value and uh, so it will not have the um, speculative nature of the Bitcoin. So I would like to ask, uh, what is your forecast of uh, the growing uh, value of Bitcoin? We know from your, your, from your book, we learned that uh, there is a plan to issue no more than 21 million uh, of units. And so can you explain the logic between the growth of value of this Bitcoin? Yes, yes. So, so, so really, there's two parts to your question. About, uh, first, about central bank issued digital currencies, and then second part about the Bitcoin total issuance and the value, the growing value of Bitcoin. So first of all, uh, yes, the, the European Central Bank and many other central banks are considering issued digital currencies. Uh, in fact, China is also already piloting a digital currency. These central bank issued digital currencies, we call them CDBCs, central bank uh, digital currencies, the initial. 
And it, it's even though it's they call it digital currencies, in my opinion, analysis, they're very different than how Bitcoin is as a decentralized digital currency. And the main difference, there's two main differences. Number one is all of these CDBCs are by definition centrally issued by the central bank. And secondly, uh, because they are pegged to their national currency, the euro or the Chinese renminbi, or the eventually maybe the US dollar, the CDBCs are also locked in value uh, to the to the traditional fiat currency. And by definition, they have unlimited issuance, meaning the central banks can continue to print uh, currencies. Um, I guess the, the term print is uh, virtual now because it's all electronic. So they can continue to issue more of the euros, more of the Chinese renminbi. So there's no so-called circulation limit. So as you as you said, mentioned uh, in my book, we talked about Bitcoin having, having a very strict circulation limit of 21 million units. So Bitcoin was envisioned as a sort of deflationary limited issuance uh, currency. So from the very first day in 2009, when Bitcoin came about, the world knew that the upper limit for Bitcoin was 21 million units. And because of that, uh, with, with the notion of scarcity, right, with scarcity and more usage, Bitcoin price has uh, skyrocketed. So on day one, the total value of all Bitcoin in circulation was zero, right? On the first day, there was no Bitcoins. And when Bitcoin came out, um, we'll, we can talk about this maybe later through the process called mining. Uh, when Bitcoin came out in January 2009, slowly there's more value created into the world. And for the, for the first year or so, Bitcoin was very inexpensive. It was, it was fractions of a dollar. And only through the next few years did Bitcoin eventually gain the price of $1 per Bitcoin. And that was a big momentous uh, achievement for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's total value was in the tens of millions and then eventually in the 100 million, eventually reached $1 billion. Uh, uh, and, and of course, you know, many, many years later today, Bitcoin is 12, 12 and a half years old. Uh, Bitcoin has reached a total value of $1 trillion. So that means if you take all of the Bitcoins together in the whole world, there's about over 18 million, 18 and a half million Bitcoins. And you multiply that by the price of Bitcoin, which today is around, what is it, $50,000, dollars $50, So that gives us roughly, you know, $1 trillion of value. And for, for, this, for those of us who are strong advocates of Bitcoin, Bitcoin maximalists, we have true believers in this. We, we think that, I think that Bitcoin will eventually become a $10 trillion and even a $100 trillion asset class. So this is why I think Bitcoin has a chance to go up another 10 times or even 100 times in value. But again, no one can predict the future. But it just based on my sort of analysis, I've been in this for 10 years. I think that with a limited issuance, you know, 21 million and with a growing supply of money, because remember, we measure the price of Bitcoin in U.S. dollars, for example. And the U.S. dollars is what's being increased and added to every single day in, in life. So by having all this U.S. dollar in circulation, you know, more and more in the next 10 years, the price of everything goes up naturally, whether it's real estate or goods and services. And of course, I think the price of Bitcoin will go up as well uh, with an inflating dollar. 
Well, okay, I will not ask you how many do you own and what is the proportion of your savings which is invested in Bitcoin. So let's go back uh, to the beginning. In fact, you correctly mentioned the mining keyword. So can you tell us, can you explain the issuing, the mining and the exchange, which then determines the value of this uh, asset? Yeah, this is mining is very, very interesting. So mining is a, is a term, it's a terminology for a Bitcoin uh, action where people use their computers to create and mine these digital Bitcoins. It's far from the, from the industry of gold, right? Gold and silver, you know, mining. Uh, even though Bitcoin is digital, uh, they still use a physical term for mining. And, and the reason is because uh, just like a natural resource, like precious metal, like gold and silver, uh, people, Gold and silver exist naturally on Earth, right? At different parts of the world, in different depths, in the mountains, in the rocks, different quantities. And humans, through civilization, has gone to refine and mine gold, to mine and refine gold into real, you know, pure gold coins and stuff like that. And so, so Bitcoin borrowed that term because in the end, when, when Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin as 21 million, what he did was he, he, first of all, he did not give 21 million Bitcoins to himself. If he had done that, Bitcoin would not be popular today because it would be seen as extremely unfair. Okay. But what he did do is he, he decided to give it to the whole world for free. And, and I want to add a caveat. It was... It was given for free in the sense that all you had to do was to get a ticket, a lottery ticket, to get a chance to win some Bitcoin. And the way to do that is to use your computer to run a program to contribute to the calculation and the network sort of uh, confirmation of the Bitcoin transactions. And by contributing your computed power to do that calculation, you get a free lottery ticket. So the notion of Bitcoin mining, the analogy I used in the book, it's very much like a lottery ticket. Okay, you, you 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 get a lottery ticket for one calculation, and then there's a lottery prize every ten minutes, roughly. Every ten minutes is a winner, and the winner gets like fifty bitcoins. Okay, so so the bitcoin the, the prize is free if you win if you win the lottery, um, and it's pretty much free because all you have to do to get the lottery ticket is to use computer power. Now, in in reality, in life, nothing is ex- exactly free. So even by running a program, even by doing a calculation on a calculator, it takes energy, it takes time, it takes resources like the computer itself. So in that sense, uh, that's why Bitcoin mining has become expensive. So basically, the more people run the calculations, the more tickets they get. And then the more tickets they have, the lottery tickets, the more higher the chance of winning the lottery. And then the more lottery tickets you win, uh, the more 50 Bitcoins you get, then the richer you get. So that's the process of mining. Um, th- does that make sense? Yes, it is a bit esoteric, as I said, as I said, or at least it appears a bit uh, esoteric. After all, there are computers and so much uh, behind uh, the, the, this process of mining, but it is a bit um, 
Um, sounds a bit esoteric. Anyway, I forgot to mention that your book is about 300 pages and it is divided in 13 chapters. In those chapters, there is also space for what we could call uh, the dark uh, side or the potentially dark side of the cryptocurrency. Uh, for example, we are told that they can be easily used by criminals, for example, to accept a ransom without the possibility to be found, to be traced back when we use and transfer uh, those um, those coins, which are uh, clearly not going through a traditional bank and they are not even uh, paper money with uh, a, a code number. So uh, how can we defend this uh, invention from the potential misuse? Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So, so it's true that there's a lot of crime that gets committed online. And unfortunately, you know, some of it has bad reputation that people, the criminals want to use Bitcoin. Uh, you mentioned the ransomware, right? This is the case where uh, criminals, you know, either hijack or steal information and they ask for ransom payments in Bitcoin. And that's happened, you know, for as, as long as Bitcoin's history. I think it's been in the news recently, but it, it also got into news about was it four years ago in 2017 there was a there was a large wave of ransomware attacks demanding bitcoin now what i have to say is um crime and theft invent involving bitcoin does not necessarily make bitcoin bad i think that's one of the one of the uh wrong incorrect assumptions many people have heard these media stories about crime and theft of bitcoin and they think oh bitcoin is bad it's used for criminal activity. And I want to point out that the reality is even before Bitcoin's invention, as a society, we have crime and theft. And before Bitcoin, it involved US dollars, it involved cash, it involved euros, it involved gold, diamonds, and jewelry. So all throughout humanity, we've had theft and crime involving money, right? Involving whatever money people use in whatever country, whatever region, whether it's gold, silver, jewelry, or cash, or coins, or, or paper money. And that's happened, and even electronic money, right? So that's happened throughout history. And so it's a wrong logical conclusion to say just because crime and theft happens with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is bad. Because if that were true, then money is bad. US dollars is bad. Euros is bad. Gold is bad. Silver is bad. Diamonds are bad, right? So that's a wrong conclusion. I think the media plays it up uh, incorrectly. The second thing is we have to ask ourselves why Today, right, with, a, with, a, with the invention of the internet, why do criminals on the internet ask for ransom payments in Bitcoin instead of dollars, instead of gold and silver? Well, it turns out paying in Bitcoin is more convenient for the criminals, right? They don't want to wait for you to do a bank transfer to the US dollar bank account, which can be traced, right? They don't want to wait for you to mail them and send them gold, right? In the old days, in the movies, we see uh, uh, criminal thief ask for bags of cash, unmarked bills right so <laughs> back then it was the it was uh it was the only way possible right for criminals to be paid in cash uh but but that big risk but these days criminals prefer to be paid in bitcoin and my the point i want to make here is of course i don't condone you know illegal criminal activity i'm not saying people should do that but what we can do is analyze why criminals use bitcoin and the reason is because bitcoin fundamentally has great features and properties it has some great aspects to it that makes it really useful. Even for me as, as a regular person, when I give speeches in the past, uh, you know, asking 
uh, getting paid speaking fees, I would ask for Bitcoin in payment. And the reason is, again, because Bitcoin payment is more convenient, it's electronic, it's fast, and there's no need to rely on a third-party bank that can add, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of unknown issues to international transfers of money. So for that reason, uh, we, we could dive in a little bit on the technical side, but there are reasons why Bitcoin is valued and used and requested as a means of payment, again, by criminals and by normal people alike. And I would say today, uh, you know, recently with Tesla buying more Bitcoin on the balance sheet, I would say today, uh, the people asking to receive payments and value in Bitcoin, the, the good transactions vastly, vastly outnumber the so-called criminal transactions. Of course, uh, but I also imagine that potentially the, the, the risk for tax purposes are also huge. So if, if a person gets paid in Bitcoin, it is very difficult for the tax authorities to notice that uh, transaction. Anyway, um, yeah. but um, I wanted to move to, um, to another important topic of your book, which is the future of the industry and so the evolution of this field, which by the way now includes other currencies other than Bitcoin. So what is going to, to happen to, to this field in the next uh, decades? What do you expect? So there's a lot of uh, cryptocurrencies now, uh, what I call copycats. Because Bitcoin is, is open, it's decentralized, by definition it has to be open source, by definition it has to be you know, free to modify. So a lot of people took Bitcoin and changed it and called it something else, including Litecoin, uh, and then there's a new invention called Ethereum. And today, th there's there's not just there's a many many alternative coins. Uh, there's thousands, in fact, of of copycat clone versions of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Now, technically, they're all they're all strong because they all benefit from the further improvements and bug fixes of Bitcoin. However, economically, there's only one coin that has economic sort of leadership position, and that is Bitcoin. So, for example, if you and I create, if I just create my coin called Bobby Coin, uh, I can launch it. But the reality is, it's ten years too late, right? It's it's eleven years, twelve years too late, and no one's going to adopt it, especially if they think Bobby as Bobby Lee, I control the coin. So, so for that reason, even though there are a lot of coins out there, you know, I caution, you know, I, I tell my viewer, uh, tell my readers that uh, what's the most important is for them to embrace Bitcoin because. Bitcoin is a true version of the global currency, the global reserve asset class, uh, whereas the many of the copycat uh, alternative coins are really just for speculative trading purposes. Now that you mentioned the, the com potential competitors of uh, Bitcoin, uh, there is also the, the new um, one issued by Facebook. Uh, but in fact, it will not be a competitor because uh, I think the plan is to have a stable value. And so it's a completely yes. different uh, um, product. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, to conclude our conversation, what about your future? Because you uh, founded one of the most successful company in the field, and now you run a new one. And what what is what are your your plans? Yeah, my new company is called Ballet. So this is my new uh, second startup. I started this company two years ago in 2019. Ballet is actually uh, very interesting. I, I, of course, I um, I made money from from selling my, my company BTCC got acquired in early 2018. So uh, I made money and became financially independent. 
Uh, and then I, I spent a year, you know, speaking at industry conferences and traveling the world. And then eventually I realized, you know what, there's still a need in the world in the cryptocurrency industry, which has not been solved. And the notion of having an easy to use wallet. So traditionally people store the Bitcoins with exchanges. People store the Bitcoins with custodial services because that was the easiest solution. But in many cases, by involving a third-party custodial service provider, you relinquish control of your Bitcoins. And it becomes, uh, it's, sometimes it's not accessible. Sometimes exchanges go out of business. They get hacked or even your account might get hacked. And you might have Bitcoin stolen because they log in, because the thieves log into your account through stolen passwords and access controls. So nonetheless, um, there's, a, there's a field of wallets called cold storage. That's the absolute highest standard. So unlike traditional wallets, uh, which are connected online, cold storage wallet uh, is where the wallet components, the, the, the data, the cryptocurrency, what they call the cryptocurrency private keys are actually not connected to the internet. So that's the highest, the safest version of storage. But traditionally, they have been very hard to use. So my company, Ballet, we've invented the world's easiest version of a wallet. And of course, it's cold storage because it's the safest and the easiest. So it's a it's just a simple, you know, uh, electronic, uh, sorry, it's a simple physical stainless steel card that has the private keys uh, to your cryptocurrency. And it's, uh, and it's pre-set up, pre-configured. So there's no setup process, very easy to use. So I've been very happy doing the startup because I think this will greatly contribute to the mass adoption of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to the world. Uh, so I'm very passionate about this. Even though I'm already financially independent, I decided to jump in and do another startup to launch this and really deliver value to the world. Uh, for, for those readers who are interested in trying uh, to invest in Bitcoin, I urge you, once you buy your Bitcoin through exchanges, I urge you to take Bitcoins out and, and hold it yourself. And of course, ballet wallets are a great choice to do that. Uh, there are many other wallets out there, but I think uh, people, if you give it a try, you might like uh, ballet. Thank you, Bobby. I, we have learned a lot through your book and through this uh, conversation. It is a fascinating uh, topic and clearly, yes, one topic that we are going to listen and read more in the future. Uh, we spoke with Bobby Lee about his book, The Promise of Bitcoin. This is published by Megro Hill now in May 2021. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.